Hi there, thanks for joining us. Andrew Dunkley here, the host of Space Nuts, and uh, we've got a jam-packed episode coming up for you. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at the rivers of Mars, some new information that uh, could uh, lead to um, you know, cementing the potential for life on the red planet. Maybe, could be, might not, don't know. And the age of the universe, new speculation that it might be twice as old as we think it is, just like Fred. Uh, and that's that's just part of it. Uh, we're also going to be answering audience questions. Uh, one uh, is titled Fred's Conjecture, which we, uh, we're going to uh, talk about. I won't reveal any more at this stage. Uh, somebody's asking about Fred's musical history and the thickness of the galaxy. Yes, it is pretty dumb. We'll talk about all of that today on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And here he is, the man of the moment, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hi, Fred. And indeed, twice as old as everybody thinks the universe is. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you, Andrew. Good to see you. Alan. Yeah, you an, too. An, an unusual time of day and week. Yes, uh, yes, we're we're doing this on a Sunday uh, because the, the 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 stars wouldn't align for us during the week. So that's right, but never mind. That's all right. We circumvented them instead. I, I think you're on fire on a Sunday morning, Andrew. Uh, <laughs> Two dad jokes. Well, ah, <laughs> uh, dear. Yes. Um, now uh, we we've got a lot to talk about, so we we might just get stuck straight into it. And this first story indeed uh, intrigues me. And that is about the the rivers of Mars, and uh, they, they've uh, released some new information. Uh, they've, I think they've used uh, computer modelling to figure this out, which is not uncommon these days. But they uh, they do reckon that the um, the rivers did run for uh, quite some time without paddle steamers, but uh, they were um, they they were running rivers on Mars. And and the the the, the major point here is long enough to perhaps have seen the early development of life. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, it's a really intriguing story, this, and it, its uh, consequences actually go beyond the planet Mars. Um, there are three places in the solar system where we believe there have been or are rivers. One is a place called Earth. Uh, yeah. The other is now Mars. Do you, do, do you know what the third one is, Andrew? Earth? Mars. Oh, the Earth, Mars, and Titan. Titan, that's right. Mm. Where they're uh, still running. They're still running. They, they are. Titan has rivers of methane and ethane. That's uh, those yeah. hydrocarbon liquids. That'd be a fun swim. <laughs> yeah, minus 195 or whatever it is. I think it's about <laughs> that. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's a place that um, people are going to uh, visit with a spacecraft whose name it's Dragonfly, that's it. It's yeah, that's the one. spacecraft which is going to go and fly around on Titan and look at the rivers. Uh, that's uh, not quite part of this story. But the reason why this story is a, a story and not just um, you know, a bit of fiction is that the modelling, exactly as you've said, and this comes from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, geologists have worked there. They've done computer modelling. Uh, compare, comparing with what we know from Im imagery, either <clears throat> satellite imagery looking down on the surface, uh, as, it, as with Mars and Titan, or what we know about the Earth's rivers. They, they've modelled the way um, 
uh, liquids and the sediment that they carry, how they move across the, the surface of worlds like Mars, the Earth, Titan, um, knowing about you know the, the gravitational pull of those different worlds, because all three of them are all different, uh, and have um, made these calculations that suggest that some of these rivers uh, were very long-lived. So um, the, um, sort of homing in on Mars, uh, there is uh, some surface areas, you know, the, the surface of Mars we know has had liquids there uh, because we see all the evidence of meandering channels. Um, we see uh, beaches, actually, uh, remnant beaches from uh, perhaps oceans. Um, but what we don't know is how long the water lasted. And, and you know, these river valleys, were they formed over a matter of maybe a few thousand years or something like that, or were they formed over much longer periods of geological time, which uh, would suggest that maybe water was running for longer and there was um, a, a greater chance of life kicking off. And in particular, I remember um, there was a story a couple of, well, it was probably a month or so ago that we didn't cover, which just hinted at this work. And um, what was shown, um, uh, and, and there's a lovely image of this on the space.com website as well, is a, is a region of Mars uh, it's got a lovely name. It's called Sprinkle Haven. Oh. Uh, Sprinkle Haven is a region of Mars where there are uh, bands of rock, basically, that, that form lines on the surface, those sinuously curved lines. Mm. And um, the suggestion is that those rock bands were laid down by sediments from a flowing river. Uh, and, of course, that, that uh, philosophy is one reason why the Perseverance rover is sitting where it is at Jezero Crater because Jezero Crater has a has a river delta in it, a place where a river has dropped sediments uh, on the floor of the crater. Yeah, uh, when a, when there was a lake there, which is very very common on Earth, we see a lot of yeah, uh, river deltas. Exactly right. And the thing about a river delta is it carries the sediment from basically all the way along the the river valley. And so the thinking there is that if you're going to find any evidence of living organisms that existed in that river, that's uh, where to place, look. That, that's that, that's where to look because that's where yeah. it would have been dumped. Uh, so the uh, yeah, the, these scientists have um, essentially they've they've applied their modelling technique um, to calculate, uh, uh, particularly uh, homing in on Mars, to calculate just how fast and how deep the rivers might have been. Um, they have looked at Gale Crater, which is a place for, very familiar to Mars watchers because that's where the Curiosity rover is. Yep. Uh, Perseverance is at Jezera. Uh, Curiosity is at Gale Crater, named, by the way, after an Australian amateur astronomer of the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, so Gale Crater um, is a place where they've looked at the, as I said, how fast and deep the rivers were. And they think they flowed for at least 100,000 years at Gale Crater. Mm. Uh, but at Jezero, uh, at least a million years, 10 times as much. And that's, uh, you know, that's what they're suggesting. This study team is suggesting that that is long enough for life processes to evolve. Um, so that's a, that's the main conclusion of what we're talking about today, Andrew. But um, they've, as, as we've hinted already, they've been been able to test this with other examples. So they've basically applied the same algorithms to Titan, um, and you know worked out uh, whether uh, how how long these rivers might last, 
and and look at um, you know look at maybe maybe the, the the length of time that we might see actively flowing um, rivers of methane and ethane on Titan. I mean, it would be terrible if they worked out that it was going to dry up before the Dragonfly spacecraft actually got there. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Not likely. Um, no, that's right. So we've got lovely images uh, of those rivers. Um, uh, nowhere near as, as deep knowledge of, uh, of Titan's rivers as we have of Mars's rivers. Mm. Uh, but the uh, Cassini spacecraft, which you and I raved about for about a decade, yeah. uh, sending back marvelous uh, infrared, uh, actually radar images, if I remember rightly, on the surface of Titan, because uh, radar can penetrate its thick, opaque atmosphere, uh, and revealing these river river valleys, lots of tributaries, all the sort of stuff that you would expect. Mm. Um, so one thing that they have noted, though, is that unlike Mars, which uh, does show deltas, uh, uh, like the one in Jezero Crater where um, where Perseverance is sitting, uh, you don't get these deltas on Titan. And so they are suggesting that that means that those rivers, the hydrocarbon rivers, don't uh, flow fast enough to carry much sediment. And remember, the sediment on Titan is actually frozen water it's water ice because that's what the bedrock is uh, uh yes it is too it's not it's not rock it's water uh so but you know that, that they would have included this in their um in their calculations um and so uh, what they've suggested uh, is that um yeah that, that these hydrocarbon rivers rivers don't flow fast enough uh, but they've looked at the river width depth slope flow rate all of that stuff uh, to uh, calculate these things. And I think they've explained that. I think that is the conclusion they've come to. Yes, okay, that's uh, fair enough. The, the, the rivers are not flowing fast enough, whereas they uh, did on Mars. Yes, so the, the rivers on Mars are more like the rivers we have on Earth. Yes, indeed. And what about what about in terms of length and, and depth? Um, I think they're, they're similar. Yeah, I think so. Given you know, that Mars is a smaller world, it's half the diameter of Earth, although it's got roughly the same land area as the Earth has. Uh, it's also, um, of course, only got uh, a third of Earth's gravity. Uh, so all of that will probably, I suspect, feed into how long a river could be on Mars, and it may actually be, mean that they, couldn't be, they wouldn't be as long. Um, but just to give them some confidence in the uh, work that, uh, that these, you know, the results that these uh, algorithms develop, they've... Uh, this MIT team have actually uh, tested 500 rivers on Earth wow. to make sure that they get the right answers. Because on Earth, we know what the right answers are. You know, we yep. have the deltas. We know about the amount of sediment being carried. And apparently, the um, the predictions are pretty good. Uh, they've verified their accuracy on the planet. Mm. I, I suppose from reading the information, the, the thing that I scratch my head about is the the rivers on Mars seem to have been fairly short lived when you talk about the age of a planet and its its evolution. Is a hundred thousand years long enough for life to start to take hold? Is that is that a reasonable assumption? Do, do you know I I had exactly the same thought, Andrew, <laughs> um, and I'm not enough of an evolutionary biologist to know. Um, but it may be um, if you've got the right materials. Um, 
the process of life kicking off doesn't take very long. It's sustaining it that I guess is the is the critical thing. And if these rivers flow for well, hundred thousand years, they're suggesting a million years for Jezero Crater. Yeah. Um, I, well, and in fact, and I should say these are lower limits, so it's at least a million years. Um, so yes, uh, maybe by the time you get to a million years, you've got some uh, resilience in any kind of proto any early forms of life that you've got in your uh, in your river or uh, its surroundings. Yeah. But yeah, it's a good question. As, as I said, the uh, same thing occurred to me. Should talk to some evolutionary biologists and find out what what they think would be the length of time it would take for life to actually to kick off. Yeah. Well, as I've said in the past, my, my theory is that the entire universe has the seeds of life. It's just a matter of getting the chemistry right and it'll pop up. That's my theory. I know it's, uh, you know, they, they've found um, that uh, in in studying materials from asteroids, et cetera, that that is actually the case in many respects. Yeah. They, they've yeah. found the, the basics. Uh, but, uh, yeah, um, it stands to reason that if you get the right stuff in the right combinations in the right place at the right time, you're going to pop up a few weeds. <laughs> I know, look, I think you're right, Andrew, as well. I, I, um, I think your analysis is correct. Water is the most common two-element molecule in the universe. So how, how does that then translate to the potential for life on, say, Titan, which is a very different environment and very you know hostile as far as we are concerned? But uh, you've got um, ethane and methane flowing through water ice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You've got all uh, rich in hydro hydrocarbons, uh, complex organic molecules, rich in water. Um, could be a no-brainer, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. You know, the the I guess the conventional wisdom might be oh minus hundred ninety. I think that's about the temperature on Titan. Far too cold for biological processes to take place, but that Maybe. ain't necessarily the case. If you've got biology that relies on things that, you know, for its working fluids, and the working fluid would be the liquid hydrocarbons, um, then if that biology uh, can, can exist, it might well find minus 190 degrees Celsius at very balmy temperature. Yeah, you do remember, in the early days of Cassini, um, there was some work that suggested that there were there could be uh, biota, in other words, living organisms, which use the ethane and methane as their working fluid, and they would breathe hydrogen and would eat, what was it, acetylene. That was mm. the molecule that they said they would, uh, would eat. And uh, tantalizingly, I don't know whether this was, was um, Born out over future, uh, sorry, over later studies. This came from the very early days of Titan. Remember the Huygens probe that landed on Titan? The very early days of Cassini, I beg your pardon, with that Huygens probe that landed on Titan. Um, they found that the acetylene and hydrogen were depleted near the surface of some of these lakes, and were suggesting that, that maybe that demonstrates that there are some acetylene eating microbes actually living in the, surf, uh, in the body of those lakes. What about you, that you, intriguing? I know you could you could sell a lot of tums on a planet like that. <laughs> Settle the stomach down. Good grief! Yeah, it certainly would. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> minus minus hundred ninety. I think you would. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right, it's a fascinating uh, theory, and if you'd like to chase it up, you can uh, you could read all about it uh, in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. This is 
Base Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Our next uh, topic is just as intriguing because it's thrown a real spanner into the works. Now, uh, we have talked about many times evidence that proves that the age of the universe is 13.8 billion years, give or take, 13.787, let's be exact. Uh, But now uh, there is, uh, I won't say evidence, but a new um, pitch being put up that it's probably a lot older. In fact, almost double, Fred. That's um, that's that's way out there when you take into account uh, what is commonly understood and believed at this point in time. Yeah, um, and I mean, if it was you or I proposing that, uh, people would fall about laughing. But this yeah. is a paper that's come from a researcher at the University of Ottawa in Canada. It has survived peer review. It's appearing in that eminent journal, the Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Uh, in a paper entitled JWST Early Universe Observations and Lambda CDM Cosmology. And translating that, it means um, the James Webb Space Telescope has observed galaxies, which we are seeing when the universe, uh, according to the current model, was only 300 million years old, mm. long enough for rivers and Mars, although there weren't any planets at that time, 300 million years old. And that's... Um, intention with our models of the universe, which suggests that galaxies take longer to evolve uh, to the level that they are at over um, you know over the, uh, the the history of the universe. So what it's saying is the observation of these early uh, of these galaxies uh, when the universe was at an age of 300 million years old shows galaxies that we think must have taken longer to evolve. That's the tension and indeed, I think it was last week, and we've certainly had it before. Uh, some of our listeners have raised that issue and said, what do you think about that? And so this is not my answer to that, as um, as uh, normally you get. This is uh, Dr. Gupta's answer. Dr. Gupta is a scientist, as I said, at the University uh, of Ottawa, Rajendra Gupta. And um, so the theory that has been proposed by Dr. Gupta uh, is sorry, Gupta, I beg your pardon, is that um, there is a new model that we need to uh, build to, uh, to to give us a better idea of the age of the universe. And mm. that is what has been done. Uh, and uh, that new model suggests that the age of the universe, as you said, rather than being 30.797 billion years, is actually 26.7 billion years. That's so, a big, big yeah, jump. Yeah, it, it's, it's not just a tweak, is it, really? Uh, we've, well, seen it, we've seen it go from 13.6 to 13.7 before, but not double, doubling in size. So um, so it's, a, a, it's a, an attempt to resolve, the, to, to, to resolve that tension between the observations that we see and our traditional interpretation of the uh, evidence for the Big Bang and the age of the universe. Sorry, I thought you were about to jump in there. No, no. I was gasping with horror. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so was I. Um, uh, so uh, what this model takes is something that was actually proposed 
decades ago, uh, in fact, by Fritz Vicky, who was an astronomer uh, who's sort of, he's actually the first person to um, to postulate dark matter because he, mm. he measured the, uh, what we call the velocity dispersion of galaxies in their clusters. In other words, the, the, the amount of in, in, you know, speed that they have as they circulate around the center of gravity of a cluster. And they, he worked out that there wasn't enough material to hold the galaxies in. And so um, that was the first, that was a puzzle that remains today. He highlighted that. Most people just said, well, we can't understand that, so we'll ignore it. And it was really ignored from the 1930s when he made that observation until the 1970s when uh, people like Ken Freeman here in Australia and Vera Rubin in the United States uh, said, we've really got a problem because galaxies are rotating too fast to hold themselves together. Yeah. So um, all of that. So it was Vicky had a theory that was, it's called the tired light theory. Uh, and in fact, I remember some of my colleagues at the Royal Observatory Edinburgh back in the 1970s and 80s, late 1970s, postulating that tired light might be a better answer to our understanding of the expansion of the universe than conventional redshift. Uh, so so the tide light theory, the original tide lights theory said the universe isn't expanding. Uh, what you've got is photons losing energy and hence being redshifted just because they're getting tired uh, over time as they reach uh, our planet. So that was the, the basics of the tide light theory. Um, but it was kind of knocked on the head by things like the cosmic microwave discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation, which uh, lets you see the flash of the Big Bang. That's what um, squashed the steady state theory of the universe, which I suppose tired light is a, a version of. So um, we've kind of discarded all these ideas um, uh, because of the success of the conventional Big Bang theory with all the, you know, the tweaks applied, which include uh, dark matter and the um, the dark energy that we've known about since 1998. You throw all those into the mix and you get a good solid value of 13 point whatever it was, uh, 13.797 billion years uh, for the age of the universe. Mm. Uh, so what uh, Dr. Uh, Gupta, actually it's Professor Gupta, I beg, I beg your pardon, uh, is uh, has proposed is that the tide light theory didn't work. He's saying, oh, Dr. Gupta is saying that the um, um, the redshift theory doesn't work either. But if oh. you combine the, the sorry, sorry, the the, the the redshift due to an expanding universe doesn't work either. Yeah, yeah. But if you combine the two, you get something that works. That's the bottom line in a nutshell. <laughs> um, I could, I do have the abstract of his. Uh, of the paper here, um, which basically says that the James Webb Space Telescope findings are in strong tension with the conventional cosmological model, what we call the Lambda CDM model. Lambda is the um, cosmological constant, which is what's causing dark, en uh, what's resulting from dark energy, we think. CDM stands for cold dark matter. Um, and the Abstract goes on to say, while tired light models have been shown to, to comply with the James Webb Space Telescope angular galaxy size data, they cannot satisfactorily explain the cosmic microwave background radiation and various other things um, that, uh, that our current theory explains. 
So the uh, the, the group that's working on this, uh, Professor Gupta's group, has developed hybrid models that include the tired light concept in the expanding universe. And that is basically the bottom line. Okay. Um, and so it goes from there through various metrics and Einstein and Friedman equations and a whole lot of gobbledygook to come out with an age of the universe of 26.7 giga years, billion okay. years. Fred, how do you feel about that? Um, uh, I feel that uh, at the moment... Uh, that is um, something that's coming from left field. Uh, I love things that come in from left field, as you do too, um, because they might turn out to be right. Uh, so what we're going to have to see is how the astronomical community, and in particular the cosmologists, react to that over the next few years, because this paper in Monthly Notices will definitely provoke um, a flood of answers Mm. Um, it's unlikely that it'll provoke an immediate response saying, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't happen often. Does happen, no. <laughs> but because because the basic paradigm is the universe is that age. And it's yep. still, you know, I mean, it, it goes back. It, it hints to the reason why the Big Bang Theory was unpopular back in the late 50s, early 60s when it was... New, a new theory, and the reason for that was that if you did, uh, if you used the then known characteristics of the expanding universe, you wound up with a universe that was too young for, uh, you know, it's younger than the planets that are in it because we can mm. measure the ages of planets geologically, um, and so it's really interesting that we might be seeing uh, a similar shift in the the paradigm, the basic paradigm that would that was fixed back in the fifties and sixties. 1960, whatever it was, the set, was it 67 when the cosmic microwave background was first observed? And that really was the death knell for the steady state theory. Um, and the Big Bang theory had to be patched up so that you do have a universe that's old enough to have stuff in it that uh, we know, whose age we know. We, we always thought that the James Webb Space Telescope would make observations that would challenge current theories. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, this is already happening, and this is this is a classic. This is not just a classic example. This is an absolute flip the yeah. lid type of uh, theory. Uh, but they're they're basing it on James Webb Space Telescope observations, suggesting that there are galaxies out there that um, that don't fit in with the current age yeah. of the universe. Yeah. yeah, and you know why is that happening? And and they've based this new theory on some of those observations. I think. Yeah, of course, that's right. That's that's the really the bedrock of of this idea that uh, mm. take it because there is this this tension between um the size of those gal excuse me those galaxies they look smaller than they're supposed to and yes. so i guess what the suggestion is here is that they're further away than than we th we thought they were uh, because we're looking back a lot further in time than um than scientists have thought so yeah, yeah what a what a shift i mean if if you and i are um talking in Say two years, three years, maybe about. I hope we still are. I do too. About a universe that's twenty six point seven or twenty seven point six or whatever it is, billion years old. Then you'll know that the that things have shifted, uh, that the idea has shifted. So it's yeah. a real milestone. It's something to look forward to and see what happens. I'm certain it will also spawn a lot of um, theory and questions from the space nuts audience because 
Then we get into these realms of, well, what we absolutely believe may not not actually be right. It just opens the floodgates. Yeah. Yeah. Great start. I think we're going to be talking about this a lot more. I'll be really interested to see how how people in the um, astronomy and space science world respond to this. I think it's going to it's a can of worms. Yeah, is what nut. I'm trying to say. The word you're looking for is the nutsy verse. <laughs> yes, probably so. Uh, yeah, so um, I, I think this is just the beginning of some um, some pretty decent debate Maybe. on the age of. The universe, uh, indeed. And if you'd like to uh, read into that more deeply, as Fred said, it's in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Uh, right, uh, let's uh, get into some questions, Fred. And I've got uh, one audio question and we've got a couple of text questions because we've been um, getting a few in, so we'll deal with those. Uh, this one comes from Clive. Clive's uh, been in touch with us before, but we've got him thinking. Hi, friend Andrew. It's Clive from Worcestershire, England. Um, thanks for a great podcast. You guys are wonderful. Um, I loved the one about the follow-ons uh, podcast <laughs> just awesome and thanks so much for the follow-on um i think fred might be being a bit modest uh he was talking about um dark matter falling into black holes or he edged towards that and i can't find much about that anywhere on the internet so i'm going to call it fred's conjecture <laughs> i think it's a really interesting thing um it's our favorite subject all of us because it's got dark matter and black holes all in one and I was going to just congratulate you on the great episode with the follow-ons, um, but it struck me, yeah, there's got to be one more question. It is interesting, if dark matter is falling into black holes, presumably it doesn't produce anything in the way of radiation because I'm guessing the radiation when matter falls into black holes is like Bremstrello. Um, it's got to be charged particles falling in. I wonder if I'm right in that. Um, so would it be possible to spot the different signatures of ordinary matter falling into black holes and dark matter falling into black holes? Because that's a really interesting thought. I'd love... Oh, yeah, he got cut off, but I thought it was worth running. Uh, yeah, because absolutely. He's asked, um, asked a pretty deep question there. And uh, thanks you... Clive, and sorry you got cut off, but uh, we I think we got the, the gist of it. Uh, yeah, uh, we did talk about this not so long ago, and um, Fred's conjecture, I thought that was a nice touch as well. But uh, yeah, what, uh, what do you think of um, Clive's thoughts? I, I, lo- I love them, um, mm. but um, there's a couple of things I might just point out. Yeah. Um, so... Normal matter, when it falls into the black hole, doesn't radiate. Uh, so Clive mentioned Bremsstrahlung, a good German word for um, things like um, Cherenkov radiation, radiation that's emitted when things uh, exceed certain speeds. Yeah. Uh, but I think dark matter, as it disappears into the black hole, is not the source of the radiation that we get from black holes. That comes from... Um, basically frictional heating, I think, just by 
the fact that these uh, the the debris surrounding a black hole, and, and it's got to be a black hole that's gobbling stuff up for it to be visible at all. Mm. Um, it's uh, that stuff is accelerated to such high uh, velocities, high energies that that you've you've got extraordinary uh, heating that produces X rays and things of that sort. Um, but it, it ties in also with the magnetic field of the black hole. So there, there is there is this sort of radiative, the, the, the kind of physical processes that Clive are talking about does, does come into being when you've got something moving through a, a magnetic, a strong magnetic field. Um, so, uh, so I don't think there would necessarily be a different signature. There, there, there might be. I mean, we... We do conjecture with some models of dark matter, and everything we know about dark matter is really a model because we've got no evidence as to what it actually is, <laughs> um, <laughs> except we know it doesn't interact in any way with normal matter other than through gravity. So, if and so, but some of the models for dark matter suggest that dark matter particles, if they, if you've got such things as dark matter particles and dark matter antiparticles, and they collide and annihilate you'll get a certain gamma ray signal, which would have a specific uh, characteristic. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that people are looking for. They've looked for uh, signs of that particular frequency near the centers of galaxies, where you might expect the density of dark matter particles to be higher, so you'd expect collisions to, to be more frequent. Um, but so far, nothing significant has yet been found, as far as I so some really interesting ideas there from Clive. Um, I should look a little bit more closely at that, though, to see, because uh, it's an interesting thought that would dark matter falling into a black hole have a different signature in the radiation? Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And, I, yeah, I, I guess we'd have to, um, and as he said, you, you um, he's been searching the internet to try and find out, well, the internet's a black hole unto itself. <laughs> Is probably why I can't find anything, but um, it, it's yeah, it's, it's probably it's probably such a, a a new concept, new theory. There's, and how do you test it? You ask Fred. That's the way to. That's the. <laughs> so what's the answer? Um, maybe, maybe. <laughs> there you go. See, once again, we adequately answer your question, Clive. That's the same answer to is the universe twenty seven point six billion? Maybe. <laughs> I think it's the answer to everything in astronomy, isn't it? Pretty close. You know, you're always... We do think... We do have some certainty about some things. Yes, yes. But then the James Webb Space Telescope takes a picture and says, well, I'm sorry, but you mere humans are wrong. Yeah, think again, lads and lasses. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, thank you, Clive. Lovely to hear from you. Uh, Andre from the Netherlands has uh, written into us. Hello, Space Nuts. I have a few questions for your show, which have been bothering me for a while. First, our Milky Way has a diameter of about 150,000 light years. I would like to know how thick it is. It is pretty dumb, but uh, we'll um, we'll talk about that. Uh, so how high is the cake is what Andre is asking. Do you want me to ask all the questions at once, or are we do them one at a time? Let's do them one at a time. That one is okay, um, well studied, and indeed, some of the work I've did when I was kind of more active in this stuff than I am now um, was about that, about the thickness of the galactic disk. And colleagues of mine uh, in the Galar survey. Oh, I remember that. 
Yeah, Galar was the galactic archaeology with Hermes, Hermes being an instrument on the Anglo-Australian telescope. Uh, so some of my colleagues, and I'm thinking in particular of uh, Rosie Wise and Jerry Gilmore, colleagues of mine um, in uh, Baltimore and Cambridge, respectively, people I've known for a long, long time. Um, they're not as old as me, though, but they're not, well, yeah, similar generation. They're not 27, uh, and, well, seven million years old, billion and, years old. Yeah, and a younger colleague, uh, who's probably only in his late 60s now, <laughs> he might be younger than that even, uh, Neil Reed, uh, also in Baltimore, they um, looked at exactly this and came to the conclusion, which I think is accepted among uh, you know the galactic astronomers. By that I mean people who study the galaxy, uh, that the, the the our galaxy, our Milky Way galaxy, has two disks, <clears throat> which are called the thin disk and the thick disk. That's right, um, and the thin disk is. Is the main one that's the most dense one, and I think thinking I'm pulling numbers out of the air now here, but but remembering back of order a few hundred light years thick, so relatively thin for yeah. something that's 100 or 150,000 light years in diameter. Mm. Um, but the thick disk is its thickness is in, in thousands of light years, it's probably of order a thousand or thereabouts light years. And so uh, there, there are two definite populations. I think, if I remember rightly, too, the thick disk has an older population of stars than the thin disk. Um, it's got more vertical motion within it, which is kind of what you'd expect because that's how it got thick. Uh, and it's much less dense. So the thick disk has fewer stars in it than the thin disk. Hmm. Uh, so that, yeah, so that's the bottom line, Andre. You, you might check on the web uh, for thin disk and thick disk, and it should take you straight to this research. Yes. Andre's second question, I would like to know if the plane of our own solar system is aligned with or tilted in comparison to the centre of our galaxy. Uh, it's highly tilted. Uh, mm. Something like a four to 60 degrees, maybe even more. And that's why, <clears throat> excuse me, when you think about the night sky, um, think about where the planets appear, they lie along the ecliptic, that's the plane of the solar system. And sometimes, you know, when we see these lovely planetary alignments in the morning or evening sky, you see them strung out on a, on a line. It's an obvious line. And that line goes right around the sky. It's tilted slightly to the, <coughs> the line of the Earth's equator. <clears throat> Excuse me, not slightly. It's tilted at 23 and a half degrees to the line of the Earth's equator uh, because that's, that's how the Earth rotates. But the, but the ecliptic plane is the plane of the solar system. And then think of the Milky Way, and it's at a steep angle yeah. to the ecliptic uh, plane. In fact, it's probably more than 60. That 60 is probably its tilt to the equator rather than the ecliptic. But it, it's it's a it's a steep angle. It's almost, you know, from if you were sitting with the, looking at the plane of the solar system as your flat, uh, as your uh, plane, uh, your reference plane, then the Milky Way is highly tilted to it. So what it's saying is that as we... In fact, it's the other way around, of course. If you think of the plane of the Milky Way, it means the solar system is well tilted. Yeah. Heard with that. We're way out of kilter. Uh, and he wants to know, finally, is uh, uh, this the same for other solar systems in our galaxy? Um, people have looked at that, uh, looking for any kind of... Um, any kind of uh, common theme, you know, where maybe all solar systems in our neighborhood are tilted at the same angle 
The trouble is, uh, with our current way of detecting planets, it's not that easy mm. to work out the tilt of a solar system. There is a there is a mechanism which has a double barrel name, and I can never remember it, that does let you cleverly work out uh, the tilt of the orbit of an exoplanet around its star. But it needs very fine measurements, really sensitive velocity measurements in order to do that. And so the sample of solar systems uh, whose tilt we know is very limited, even though we know about more than 4,000 planets around other stars, uh, we we don't know much about them as solar systems generally. Yeah. Uh, so it's a relatively small number. And so I think the jury is still out on that. Uh, although I think the evidence so far seems to be that there isn't any preferred tilt. Uh, but the, you know. So I, I, I know the answer. It's, wait for it, maybe. Oh, maybe. That could be the answer. Yes. The answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you, Andre. Lovely to hear from you. And finally, Tom in Canada. Hello, Fred and Andrew. I'm a subscriber. Thank you, Tom. That's um, you know, very generous of you and greatly appreciated. Uh, he said, uh, and an admirer of your podcast since about episode 70. That was only a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I have uh, two questions for Professor Watson. Uh, your Wikipedia page mentions uh, a few musical compositions you were part of. How does uh, the cosmos inspire your, your music and does music inspire any thoughts or ideas you might have in your astronomical research? Uh, they're great questions, Tom. And my, um, I, I don't know, I never look at that Wikipedia entry. Somebody <laughs> wrote that years ago and it's hugely out of date. Uh, but my, there's two parts to my musical life and it is a very, it's a very important aspect of uh, so the, my first love has always been, I know it sounds daft, classical music. Mm. Uh, I can still remember <laughs> being among a bunch of young teenagers when I was probably about 11 and they were all hanging out and they, they, they said, so what's your favorite tune? It was, a, it, was a, it was a Beethoven dance party. That's what it, it was. <laughs> no, it wasn't actually. They, they, they went around saying, uh, you know, what their favorite song was. And it was um, once said, uh, oh, rock around the clock, Bill Hay. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, don't you rock me, daddy-o. That was another one. And they went around, they got to me, and I said, Ravel's Bolero. And they thought, they thought who is this? Who the hell is this guy? <laughs> uh, and look, that's just been an interest throughout. Uh, so there is, um, I do work with, um, with a, a contemporary Australian composer by the name of Ross Edwards. He's very well known. Yes, he is. Classical music circles. Um, and he and I have collaborated on a number of his works. I don't write the music because I don't have that skill. I write the words. Uh, and in fact, one of them, one, uh, you might be able to see it. I pointed out that blue thing on the wall there. Oh, yeah. It's the 2008 APRA Award for the best choral work, APRA Classical Music Award. And APRA stands for Australian Performing Rights Association, just in case... Yeah. Not sure. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think I might be the only astronomer with a Napra classical How music. How about that? But the other half, of course, is when I was in actually at uni, I picked up a guitar. Somebody gave me a guitar and said, learn to play this. Uh, we were doing gospel songs, actually, at the time. That was what it was all about. And he said, uh, we need to, somebody who can play the guitar. So 
he gave me the guitar, and by the end of the summer vacation, when I got back, I was better than him. <laughs> so I just took to it like a duck to water. And uh, actually, on the other side, that case there next to the uh, bookcase is uh, it's a hard case that I occasionally use. It's a Hiscock case. All right, wait, wait for it. Oh, no, no. oh, look, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can't see it over this. Oh, uh, yeah. I can see something that might be a guitar. Oh, I see the guitar, yeah. There it is. Oh, no, it's cut away. It's mine. Very nice. Well, mine's got a Gibson Blue Ridge Custom in it that was made in 1968 and is yep. uh, something I've been playing for a long time. And so I, I, I got caught up in the folk blues world in the in the 19, uh, late 1960s, early 70s. I played with a lot of people who later became very big names um, and... Uh, uh, still do a little bit. Uh, I sing, sing Daft Science songs occasionally, you know, it's in the pub. So it's not so much, uh, I, I guess the music does inspire me in some way. I mean, there's bits of Sibelius, for example, that just speak of a shimmering night sky. It's just fantastic, and that cheers me up no end. Uh, but with the with the, the stuff with the guitar, the folky stuff, what I'm doing is trying to use it as an outreach tool to talk, sing about the universe and hope other people will find that inspiring and interesting. Right. So I, uh, with such songs as the Galaxy Redshift Blues and that big hit, The Universe is Like a Brick. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, dear. Uh, Tom, you, uh, I hope you're glad you're asked. Uh, you yeah. asked the question. Uh, he does have a serious question, though. Could black holes be safely used in gravity assist? I think someone else asked that recently. What was the answer? No. Um, you, you, yeah, uh, I think it's no. I mean, there is a serious side to that because, um, you know, there there are stars in orbit around the, the galactic center's supermassive black hole. Um, one of them, I think it's called S4. There might be another one that's even nearer now. There's one of them that came within a, literally a few trillion kilometers of the black hole. It's in orbit with a period, I think, of about 12 years, if I remember rightly. Hmm. Um, but you won't want to get much nearer than that uh, because then you start feeling the tidal effects. If your spacecraft is of any size whatsoever, one side of it will feel more gravity than the other, and that doesn't have a happy end. And everybody on the other side of the ship gets older faster. Yeah, well, there's that too, yes. You've got that as well as being spaghettified. It's just a, yeah, well, you know. a no-win situation. And I don't think the answer to that is, I don't think it's maybe. I think the answer is don't go there. Don't go there at all. <laughs> no. All right. Thank you, Tom. Uh, thank you, Andre. Thank you, Clive, for your questions. And uh, a reminder, if you have questions for us, Go to our website, click on uh, the AMA tab, and it will give you the opportunity to send text or audio questions. Or if you want to stay on the homepage, just uh, there's a tab on the right-hand side that's a very icky kind of green <laughs> spearmint color. Uh, send us your voice message is uh, another way of sending through uh, questions to us or just comments. Uh, just don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from and while you're on our website, don't forget to visit the shop, all sorts of doodads in there. And uh, as uh, Tom said, he's uh, he's a patron. And if you're interested in becoming a patron, uh, you can click on the Support Space Nuts tab and uh, have a look at what um, that's all about. Uh, it's certainly not mandatory. It's totally optional and totally up to you and totally voluntary, which is three ways of saying the same thing, um, which is very astronomical to do. Um Fred, we are done for another day. Thank you, sir. 
pleasure, Andrew. Great stuff. <laughs> what a thrilling! This could be a milestone, you know. If uh, if in ten years' time we're talking about a universe that's uh, getting on for thirty billion years old, so um, we're, uh, we're 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 seeing a, a, a watershed moment, a game changer. Indeed, yes. And I I uh, dare say we will get, uh, as I said before, a lot of feedback from the audience about that one. Uh, it might become as popular as talking about black holes and dark matter. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, thanks, Fred. We'll catch you next time. Sounds great. Thanks. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, joining us every week on Space Nuts. Uh, being a Sunday, we let Hugh have a sleep in, although that's something he does seven days a week, so nothing different. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for your company, and we look forward to chatting again very, very soon on the next episode of Space Nuts. See you then. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.